Lord, we thank you for the, the blessings you poured out for Freddie as you brought him to know you uh, through your gifts and by your grace. You, you brought him to know and trust in you as the Savior God. We ask that you comfort Henny and all his family and those who grieve the loss of his father, Freddie, at this time. Comfort them with a sure hope that we will see him again, uh, the sure promise of the resurrection. And also, Lord, we pray that you be with uh, Judy as she continues to recover. We thank you for a good outcome from her surgery and uh, ask that you give her strength and healing in your gracious working. And Lord, continue to bless and uphold uh, my Aunt Faith as she's struggling with various challenges, great challenges. We ask that you give her perseverance and strength, keep her strong in the faith, and continue to pour out your joy to her heart. We pray all this as we now turn to your word in Isaiah chapter 40. We pray that you open our eyes to see wonderful things and to have our life centered on the one who has promised to come, our God. Amen. Okay, jumping now into Isaiah 40. Just to quickly recap last time, uh, we had last time gone through the first 11 verses of chapter 40. Recount how the situation was. This was about 700 years before Christ. The southern kingdom was, in a sense, trembling in its boots, seeing what happened to the northern kingdom. About 20 years after Isaiah starts, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians. And then Isaiah comes with these words. In the midst of all the, the trouble and uncertainty of comfort, shares the gospel. And we looked at uh, the messenger that would come, John the Baptist, who would make the way level before the coming of the Lord. Uh, that messenger would proclaim God coming with his victory over battle. He would have those he won, his recompense with him, his reward, and he would shepherd his flock in gentleness and tenderly. That brings us to verse 12. So we'll, we'll jump into it now at verse 12. I think I'll, I'll read here just to start us off verse 12 through 14 of Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains of the scales on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? So we'll pause there. <clears throat> so all these rhetorical questions designed to put things in perspective for us, right? Sometimes we might be tempted to question God. What truths do you see here regarding the foolishness of that thought? God's all knowing. Yeah, so we would question God, the one who knows all things. Pretty uh, ironic and, and pitiful if, if we are going to question him. Right, so not only does God know all things, but who are we in comparison to him? We're just little children. Right. 
So our, our comparison to God is like a little child, even, even less really, but that's the attitude we need to adopt. It reminds me of Job. Yeah, Same this is, kind of... was it a Job 48 or 38? Uh, there you have God in Job 38 saying, surely you know Job, for you are already born. You know, sarcastically attacking Job because that really was the point of Job, is that Job demanded a, a hearing, a questioning, an answer from God when he should just humble himself under God. Yeah, the, the first part here, verse 12, talks about God's wisdom, really, in, in knowing He's weighed the mountains, he's weighed the, the waters in a scale. You know, Jesus points out that he, he numbers the hairs on our head. Imagine God putting the mountains on a scale and then knowing every single atom, every molecule in those mountains. This, this should humble scientists or revolutionists. You know, really. It's like... They want to explore the wonders of, 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 of God's creation, but they come up with their own ideas. Like, God said it took them a week or six days. But they say, no, we know better. It had to take millions of years. Right, so they don't know a God who is so powerful, so therefore they have to invent a story or a scheme of how everything came to be. And... This should put them in their place when they realize you're trying to come up with something and God has revealed it. One who knows all things has made that known. So the first part is God's knowledge, right? You'd say his awareness perhaps of this world and how this, what's in this world and how it operates. Look at verse 13. Then it starts getting, I think, more to sarcasm. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? So are you going to give God advice? Uh, you mortal man, you created being. And then the next is even more, I think, sarcasm. Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him? You know, did God ask you to give him advice? You know, if you're going to give anyone unsolicited advice, God's probably not the one to do it. And who taught him? As if God needed to, you know, learn or be taught how everything should be. Yeah, this is, this is going to be one of Isaiah's major themes in his book. Just the incomparable greatness of God. Both incomparable in his wisdom, his power, his working, uh, his planning. And right now it's really us that we should be comparing you know, our, our own limited abilities and understanding to his. He's going to get into how the nations are so small before him. Can we maybe share some of the ways the sinful heart acts as if it can be God's advisor? And not only give him advice, but give him an insight and teaching. Yeah. Prayer requests. I mean, you can, uh, many people send their prayer requests to God, but, you know, it's up to him whether he's going to uh, fulfill those prayer requests. And then if he does, it's his own time. Right. So if we if we want to uh, say a prayer and we don't say it, Lord, you know best. Your will be done. Yeah. We're seeking to instruct Him, and when really we should be able to say that, you know best. Yes. Yep. Other ways that we seek to um, give God insight and teaching and advice. 
or attempted to do it. Well, we think we can do all kinds of things to make the world better, a better place. <laughs> okay. We think we can change God's world and make it a better place. Sometimes people think, oh, you know, God says one, he made them male and female, but he didn't really mean that. Here's what God's scripture really says regarding that. And so it, it seeks to change, the sinful mind seeks to change what God said about there being two genders. We got a better idea, God. Let's, let's just have this fluid thing going where there is no such thing as gender. Giving God advice. There, there are Christians that try to reinterpret scripture that way or unbelievers who hate the Bible because it says that. I think if our life isn't going just like we think it ought to, we have a tendency to talk with the Lord and say, you know, this is really how it ought to be. And, right. We personally will say, God, this is not the way it should be in our own life if it's not going the way we want. Instead of not my will, but yours be done, we forget to add that last part of the Lord. So we miss what we saw early in the chapter. He's got a a good plan. He's coming. And then we miss here just how great he is. You had a comment? Oh, I was just saying, putting words in God's mouth, but you give a really good example? Yeah, there are many examples we could give, give, right, of times people put words in God's mouth. They, they seek to be God's advisors, so they change the scriptures. Think, well, God didn't really mean that. God wouldn't have meant that. I'm pretty sure I know what God would have meant. And then they, they change the Bible. Yeah. So, yeah, it's done, mostly done, I'd say, by theologians who change the word of God to fit their desires. Uh, Consider everybody who reinterprets scripture. They are doing um, what Isaiah is speaking against here, giving God advice, trying to be his instructor. There are people who say, oh, hang on, I've not forgotten. There are people who say, um, no, forget it, I can't remember. Okay, let me know if it comes back. You're just trying to make an example why we don't teach God, right? (laughs) All right, so how about we read the next section, verses 15 through 17. Someone want to read that for the group? Okay. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Thanks. So pause there. All the nations are nothing to him. When do we need that reminder? Okay. When would it be a particularly useful reminder? Election day. Sure. You know, maybe if we're fretting about the, the tides of history and we see the people that are ruling in power and you're, you're wondering who's in charge here, God says, they're nothing to me. We might be fretting, oh, that person's going to ruin everything or this person can save everything. God says, they're nothing before him. Uh, they're regarded as dust, the nation's. So collectively, the nations are dust. That really puts us, I'd say, in perspective. Or maybe we're fretting about warring nations and rumors of wars. 
to know that God is so far above it all, not that he doesn't care, but it's so insignificant in the big picture and in his working and his plans. I think the overall thing too, every day realize that it shows that this world is, this is what happens when sin came into the picture. It made it all worthless. It was perfect at first. Right. But now it's, yeah, he can say it is as dust. He can say the nations are dust because he's proclaimed, dust you are and to dust you will return. Because of the curse of sin, uh, they are now regarded as nothing before him. Think about Isaiah's uh, context now, what life was like in Isaiah's time and Israel's, Judah's circumstance and how much they needed to hear this. Because they're thinking, oh, we'll never get past this uh, conquest by Assyria and we'll, we'll never survive this onslaught. How much comfort actually this would have been for them to hear, they're nothing, they're dust. You're afraid of, of them and what they can do? Who are they compared to the Lord? Powerful nations think they know what's best, but even the, the greatest are nothing before God. Uh, this is another theme that might, I don't know if I call it a theme, but maybe a, a reference that will reoccur is the islands. So it says the, the nations are nothing uh, you have the, the translation that will come up as the islands. So those islands are distant nations. So verse uh, 15, it comes up, I think, the first time in this section. He weighs the islands as if they were fine dust. And says he lifts up the islands like Yeah. So when you hear islands, think, you know, distant Gentile lands, you know, those Greek islands across the Mediterranean Sea. Um, when Isaiah refers to the islands, it's really the non-Jews that are far away. They're too. They are nothing. He's Lord over all the earth. Comments, questions up to this point from verse uh, 12 to 17. Uh, I was thinking when it says all the nations are nothing to him, and yet he treasures each and every one of us. So I'm I was thinking about just when it says that the nations are nothing to him, but we're important to him. But we, as individuals, are a chosen people, a holy, a precious possession, a people belonging to God. Yeah. So that, that sets out the contrast. It's not like God looks at this world and says, oh, I want more people. He says, no, they can offer me nothing. And all the more because of that highlights what a gift it is to be considered God's treasured possession. If he can brush aside nations as nothing and yet consider us now so valuable that he put the, the blood of his son on us and calls us his own, not because we're inherently of any value. It makes me think of um, how we act as salt, as a preserving agent. If he, if he blesses our country and he values, values our country, it's because there are Christians, his people are in it. But right. if his people are not in the country, then he's not going to preserve it and bless it any longer. Yeah, put those two thoughts together. We are God's chosen people. The nations are nothing, so why does God let this world go on? Blessed because of the, the, the salt of the earth. The Lord. Right, often quoted, it's given to um, remind us you know, that we need the Lord, because without him we're nothing, and he regards us as nothing. Yeah. Other thoughts, comments up to this point? Okay. 
Let's go on then. Let's read verse 18 through 20. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. So now we start um, getting God picking on the other gods, so to speak. There is no such thing as another god. And Isaiah is going to bring that out here. So how can you compare God to the other gods around him? The, the ones that people are worshiping in Isaiah's time, the, the gods fashioned in, in human hands and with metal and wood and clay. What are some of the ironic aspects about fashioning idols? Right. As Paul points out in Romans 1, they, they worship the created instead of the creator. They're basically taking what God made and worshiping that instead of the maker. Any other ironic aspects? So yeah, they're created. I think our God, I, our God is perfect, <coughs> and no matter how they would make an idol, it would never be perfect. So it just right. wouldn't be Fallen, fallen sinners will never fashion any perfect anything, nonetheless, a god. So it's trying to make it with precious metals, with sturdy wood that won't rot, so it'll last right. not forever. I mean, it never does. But. Isn't that ironic? They're, they're trying to make it so it won't fall over. Yeah. And they're trying to make it that it doesn't decay, because everything in this world decays, including the gods we fashion. They won't last. They'll try to make it last a while. Uh, do you catch the, the irony that's connected to that in verse 19? A goldsmith overlays it with gold. They don't even have enough precious metal to make it out of precious metal. They just cover it with precious metal. You know, they put a gold leaf over it to make it shiny. But it's not even itself constituted of something entirely so precious as it appears. So, yeah, the carved wood can rot. Uh, also, uh, it says, uh, they look for a skilled worker to set up an idol. Doesn't that contrast with who taught God to someone has to be skilled to make this idol? So the maker is smarter than the idol itself, in a sense, in that he, he fashioned it, the, the, the goldsmith or whatever it might have been. Yeah, so it takes skill to make an idol, and then it's less than its maker. And it might topple one day. They set it up so it will not topple. Just this whole section, 18 to 20, is dripping with irony of how do we compare God with every other God? Can you apply these truths to secret idolatry? So we've been talking about fashioning an actual literal idol that people would bow down to. Do any of these ironic truths apply to the secret idolatries? Do you like auto tickets or something? Sure, yep. <laughs> So people, people worship uh, maybe the, the idea of getting rich, the greed of wealth, so they're worshiping wealth. They'll, they'll give a sacrifice to their God as they give money to the, the lottery. And so many people lose out, lose out, and lose out. 
think with secret idolatry, ultimately, you're worshiping yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. To what end do they want that wealth? For their own purpose. To honor themselves. To make themselves feel exalted. Yep. So it's still the work of their own hands, which will fail. And even if you win the, the multi-million or billion dollar jackpot, you're still going to need all the skill you can to prevent that from toppling. Either because of your health, you're not going to enjoy it, or because of... Oh, scam artist. Scam artist, <laughs> thieves, taxes. It will all fade and slowly dwindle away. Or that money might actually bring, not blessing, it might bring hardship. Hardship which people can find. Yeah, any, really any form of secret idolatry, which, yeah, is self-worship, it's going to be ironic you know, that that becomes your God, that you would put your hope and your, your time and your energy into what you have fashioned to be your God. Pride. Centered on pride. Yeah, so yeah, pride once again directs it back to self. Good reminders for us as we consider where to put our attention that God is beyond compare and anything that we try to fear, love, or trust above him. It's just a sad irony if you try to do that. Okay, verse 21. So now he's addressing us. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? I'm just going to pause there. Uh, 22 is actually tied to it. So let's read 22 actually. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. So it kind of gets into don't you know about what God is like? That's what it gets into. So those questions, do you not know? In what ways have all people known and heard the truth declared to them? And it says here, since the earth was founded, since the beginning. How have all people known about the glory of God since the very beginning of time? The visible evidence around us. Right. So when Isaiah says this, yes, he can be talking to the people of Israel of his time who have the word of God. Don't you know God? But he's really getting this message out to the islands, to the distant nations, and he can ask them too. Have you not understood since the earth was founded? Before Moses wrote these things down, everybody knew there is one creator God who created this marvelous universe who is glorious, as we can see above it, uh, from all of his creation. So yeah, the, the natural knowledge of God. Paul brings that out in Romans 1, that you know everyone from the very beginning has known. Um, there's no, he says, you're without excuse. So every page of scripture echoes, did you not know? Couldn't, couldn't you tell there's a God over all this? Uh, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, their, their voice goes out, night after night, without speech but their, their message is heard. And so the, the natural knowledge of God, that there's a, points to a creator. The Jews also had a clear revelation, so they had both. 
Let's read now the, the question. What, what did we have to know from beginning? Um, let's, let's put together verses 22 to 24. Someone want to read that section? Okay. He reduces princes to nothing. I'm starting in 23. Is that correct? Sure, we can do that. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground. And he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. Okay, so let's compare that picture with what we read in verses 6 through 7. So in 6 through 7 it said, All people are like grass. The glory is like the flowers of the field. The breath of the Lord blows on them. And the grass withers and the flowers fall. Does that fit what we just read? So he brings princes to naught. So that grass includes the rulers of this world. And no sooner are they planted and sown and take root, then he blows on them and they wither. So it's basically reminding us of that theme that he brought in earlier. Right, so I think uh, together with verses 6 through 8, it emphasizes the shortness of life. I think if it's going to add one thing, do you see one thing that he adds here that's different from 6 through 8? Okay. Tempest carries them off. Carries who off? Yeah, so now we're talking not just about all people. The focus is brought on the, the princes, I think, and the rulers. And that really fits in this, this context. He's saying nations are like nothing. Why are you worried about this? The Assyrians, they have their god and they have their idols, but those are weak idols they fashioned. And even their rulers... Um, it's going to be later on, about 100 years later, Nebuchadnezzar. Here you have the Assyrian armies, and their princes are like nothing. So they, too, are going to face it. So I, I think the emphasis here is even powerful rulers eventually must face the breath of the Lord, and it brings them to nothing. Or maybe another way of putting it, this applies to everyone, including those that you fear and that you dread. All right, let's review this section. Can you give some examples of ways which people might treat God as if he's small and not a gloriously powerful God? If you're kind of in that advice, you're probably thinking he's on your level. Right, that God is like us. So I'm going to give him some advice. Definitely bringing God down to our level, treating him so small. All you do is look back at the universe and how huge it is. Right, failing to grasp the wonders of the one who's over all the earth. And he looks down on the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He's enthroned above the earth. Any other examples and ways we treat God small as if he's not gloriously powerful? Well, we identify ourselves as, what was that new one? There's a new gender out now called cis. <laughs> the cisgender. Cis? Cis. cis. Well, it stands for, that's what you, to indicate that you are what's on your birth certificate. 
That somehow you're you're different. So yeah, giving God advice well, I'm really on that. I'm really who I am. As indicated on my birth certificate. You know, you know, have to affirm what should be obvious. What God says, how He made us. Yeah. It's because you can't. I mean, they had to have a, a name to identify a normal person. Well, <laughs> yeah, so you can't say normal because they're they were abnormal, and that's not nice. So, um, you had to come up with a word special for everybody. Yep. Be, no, it goes on and on. If you're trying to walk around what Scripture reveals, you're, you're going to constantly be playing word games and working to redefine truth, really. Because you're getting away from the word. Yep. So that, that treats God as if he's small. It looks at his creation and says, I'm going to redefine everything here. Uh, can you share some examples of ways which might be tempted to give God advice or question his plans? Sure. When we need help and God's certainly, as he promised, working all things for our good, but we don't like the timetable, we don't like the road that we're on, we don't like the route to get there. We know the final destination, but we don't trust we're going to get there. Just telling God how to, what we want instead of accepting what God gives us. Right. And how hard that is to be like Job and actually say, the Lord gives, the Lord take away, may, may his name be praised. Job didn't hold to that entirely. He started questioning God. Describe the comfort we have when evil rulers and dignitaries toss their weight around and seem to have a strong sway over us. We know that ultimately God is in control and he's working all things out for the good of those who love him. Yeah. So we can fret about who's in control, but this, this section of scripture really puts it in perspective. They're just dust. And he'll, he'll blow on those princes and carry them away with the breath of his wind and they'll be withering and fading. They're nothing to him. You know, and, and as we've all seen in the past, how some can get so involved in politics, for example, and they're really getting stressed out over it all. It's, it's their life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's their idol. And they get, it destroys them. And if you could just remember God's word that he's the one that establishes all authority on earth. Give respect to the, those in authority. Obey your leaders. And, you know, on and on and on. Just keep that stuff in mind and then you don't have to stress out. Yeah. <laughs> now we were, we were talking in confirmation class today about the third commandment. And you know, what does Jesus mean when he says, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You know, the things that weary and burden us, our fears, our anxieties, the, the efforts to make ourselves good enough, to do what we think we need to do to make things right. And Jesus just says, come to me, I'll give you rest. And yeah, he does give us a yoke, but then he describes that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So kind of like what you were getting to build, the, the commands of God, to, you know, honor authority might seem like a burden to the outside world, but to us as God's people, I can do that. I know God's in ultimate control, and he's the ultimate authority, but he wants me to submit to every governing authority. I, I can do that. Or God's in control, and he says, you know, whatever the commandment might be, every time the believer can say, that's not so heavy. I know I'm forgiven, and I know that this is for my good. 
And I know my God loves me. And then that some people too, they, they take that a little further. Yeah, but it also says that you're supposed to obey God rather than men. So since this president or somebody is doing this, I don't think that's right. That's their opinion. I don't think that's right. Therefore, I'm not going to go along with it when it's really, it's an audiopera thing. Right. Now, if, if you start um, going down the path of God is on so-and-so's side, does so-and-so truly have God's kingdom in mind? Maybe. But you have to look at every part of their life and compare it with God's <clears throat> word. Not just, oh, they're, they're a Christian and the other people are, are the enemy. Well, look what God says in his word. Follow his word, not a person. And actually, sometimes, you know, dare we say it, someone who's a champion in the reign, the reign of politics can become a, something of a false god. Uh, where they become the one that we, who can you compare to so-and-so? And who is like them? When really they're just being propped up by you know, their campaign managers and by the media or by whatever propaganda tool there is. And they're, they're being made to look like they'll never topple. But that's ultimately not going to stand. Can we share some, uh, some of, maybe relate some of the pathetic pictures of trying to fashion our own gods? This section kind of highlighted that. Sorry, I'm still stuck on what we were just talking about. <laughs> so there, but there does come a point where you do have to obey God rather than the governing authorities if, if they want you to directly go against God's word. So right. not to preach sin as sin or to take part in the murder of innocents with abortion and things like that. Yeah. I mean, then you have to say, no, I'm not going to obey the governing authorities. Yep. So you draw the line when, when they go against God. And, you know, not to mispaint the picture, we, we do need and we do find blessing through Christian politicians and Christian voters. Uh, that, that can be a blessing, but it can't be your source of strength and hope. It will constantly frustrate you. And many people will fail you and you'll find disappointment over and over. Let's see if the recording's still going. Yep. Okay, thanks. Good to keep that in mind. So do we have any pathetic pictures of trying to fashion our own gods? How can, can anybody relate some of those pictures? They were concerned about the wood, the wood rotting. They're concerned about the gold yep. shiny enough. And uh, yeah, it's kind of pathetic. So the, a little idol that they prop up with their own strength and they're concerned it won't fall over, just apply that, as we mentioned, to the the things we make into gods. I'm concerned that my major investment will crash. I'm concerned that my house will catch fire. I'm concerned, whatever it is. Or maybe your, your false theology is that you worship people, you know, your spouse and having the perfect family. You're concerned something's gonna to happen to them. If you don't have the Lord, something will. Eventually, all of it will fail. I saw, um, uh, that's a different illustration. I'll save that for later. Let's uh, contrast the incarnation of Christ and his exaltation with the false idols people fashion. So this section here of Isaiah says, who will you compare God? Well, what about the incarnation? Let's see if we can compare 
In contrast, Christ in his incarnation and with his exaltation, with the false idols. It was made possible by God. Okay. So God, Christ is not a human invention or he's yeah. not something that human ideas came up with. God didn't have to go to somebody else and say, make me an idol. Yeah. Overlay with overlay gold or something. Right. So God gave directions for, you know, things in the tabernacle and so forth, but he didn't have to give directions for, here's what's going to happen and here's how we're going to get the Messiah. He just sent him. He sent his son in human flesh. And God did that. It was a miracle too because it couldn't happen by normal conception. It had to be a virgin birth. So even there, you can't claim human credit. No one, no one could say, yeah, yep, we um, gave birth to the Messiah. Mary was chosen in grace to bear him, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Other aspects of Christ and his incarnation and exaltation that, that will contrast with idols. Created the world and everything that's in it, and what these idols, these idols can't do anything. They're just they're dead. Okay, so the the power, even as he humbled himself and lowered himself to take on our place, Christ set aside his divine power and glory, and yet he displayed a power that none of the people around him could match. As he drove out demons, as he raised the dead, as he you know walked on water, all those miracles that Christ did. None of the false gods of this world had ever done even once uh, what Christ was able to do in his lowliness. There's also no promise of eternal life. They're just an object, dead thing. Right. So all the, all the idols have fallen. Picture any god that someone has set up. Some statues of Buddha, I suppose, have been around for hundreds of years. But they have to polish them. They have to make sure that nobody bombs them with an airplane. We have to set them aside, keep them safe. Meanwhile, the world attacked Christ and tried to kill him and put him to death. And they failed. So even the world's greatest attempts at putting away the incarnation in Christ failed when the, the world has to protect its idols and make them stand. Christ overcame death in the grave and rose again. And of course, you throw in Christ's exaltation, and he fulfills everything that's spoken here according to his human nature as well. Now, even the man, Christ, is beyond compare, and there's nothing you can liken to him. Christ, who from eternity had all wisdom and power. And put your hope in him. It will never fail. Other thoughts, comments on this section here, chapter 40, verse 12 to 24. Okay. So we're going to switch over to our next handout there. Jump to Isaiah 40, 20 to 5 to 31. So the last section I titled, The Lord is Beyond Compare. This section I'm going to title, The Lord Never Grows Weary. So not only is he not like us in wisdom and strength and working and how he is above all rulers, he is also not like us in that God doesn't get tired or wear out. 40 verse 25 
To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Got a a lot right there just to discuss. So verse 25 here. The Israelites were surrounded by nations worshiping false gods. Uh, Those nations were starting to conquer their cities, tear down their fortresses. How do you think that made them feel about those other gods? Maybe there was something to it. Yeah. Maybe maybe God's starting to lose his edge. And maybe those gods are starting to, to take the upper hand. And God is saying, who is my equal? Let's see if we can uh, apply. Share some ways that the defeated believer can give in to defeatism when they see the influence and power of evil. Well, how many times have, have we Christians coveted something my neighbor's got so much stuff, you know. They will go to church. They don't believe, but they always seem to have a lot of money. Yeah, we might think that the people who don't worship the Lord, they have plenty of things. How come they're better off? <laughs> Is that always the case? Well, from what you can see, but you don't really know what's on Right. Are they truly better off? First of all, we know the, their outcome. You know, as Asaph says in his psalm, we know their, their end is destruction. But even then, um, do they have peace and joy like the believer does? Do they have forgiveness? Do they have um, all the things that come with being in faith, access to the throne of God, uh, being valued as his chosen people because we have his great gifts of his blood and forgiveness? Yeah. And hope. You know, hope is looking forward to something. What does uh, the person who has all these other false idols and secret idolatry that they worship, what do they have for hope? That they can maybe enjoy 80, 90 years of relatively good health, but their hope is, in the end, the grave. And the, the judgment that the guilty conscience tells them it awaits. Psalmist was jealous of the, the wicked yeah. because they're so prosperous. Yeah, he says, and if I had continued like this, I would have been like a brute beast, a mere animal living by instinct. And I entered the house of the Lord and I remembered their, their end. And he talks about how you guide me, Lord. So we talk about all the things a believer has hope, <coughs> the comfort of you know forgiveness, peace, joy, knowing what is ahead, but also guidance in life. So we have that too. Uh, what, what comfort do we find in this verse? There is no equal. All right. Um, Holy One is a title that comes up here. And I believe that's the first time we've seen that title in this, this part of the book. So he says, says the Holy One. We're going to see throughout the second half of Isaiah this picture that God not only calls himself holy, but he has a holy servant. So he's called the Holy One of Israel. We didn't get to that full title yet, but that is coming. Just keep in mind that God defines himself as separate, incomparable, and that he alone is 
absolute holiness. And his son is the only one that we can say the same, the, the Holy One of Israel, the only man who can call himself holy. So we'll, we'll get to that coming up. Kind of remind me too, when he was with Moses, I am. Right. The one who is. So being holy is without um, sin, without mistake. And we're going to see that title used specifically going to be referring to the Redeemer. And it's actually most often found in Isaiah. Verse 26 we read about looking into the heavens and who created all this, who brings out the starry host. God can keep close track of all the stars he's created. He commands, when you see the word, the hosts, the starry host. I believe that refers to angels there. Um, sometimes if you read the King James, you got the, the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. It's referring to his heavenly armies or the, the powerful angels that are under his command. So he sustains the heavens with his power. How does that make you feel about his knowledge and power? Yeah, imagine how much energy that must take to sustain everything. He says not one of them is missing. He's controlling all things. So we're starting to see already the, the strength of the Lord. Verse 27, we start to get to Israel's complaint. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. So God knew his people were complaining, and he knew it felt like to them like he wasn't watching over them anymore. When do we need to be reminded that God isn't unaware of our struggles? Every time we have them, we're struggling. <laughs> sure, when we have them and when we start to think... When we, when we despair, or turn, you know, we start to despair when we forget that who's really in control. Yeah, and we think because of his greatness, because of our smallness, maybe he's not paying attention. We start to think that our smallness in comparison to God's greatness means that he's not watching over us or that he doesn't care about us. Or if he doesn't cause things to happen the way that we think that they should happen, then we think he isn't, he's not paying attention. <laughs> right. And that happened literally, didn't it, with Jesus and his disciples? He says, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And tired as he was, he fell asleep. But when it came down to the disciples seeing the, the waves crashing over the boat, and it was a great storm. Sometimes it's a test on us, too. He does that to build up our strength in us. Right. So when time gets tough, those are trials of testing. Not to harm us, but to build us up. Build us up. Yeah. And the disciples, remember what they cried out when they, they saw the waves and the, the boat and they, they saw that they couldn't swim as good as that boat? Don't you care if we don't? You care? Yeah. Lord, don't you, don't you care? Is, is our way being disregarded by God that we're about? We're the disciples and we're about to die and drown. So I guess it's a matter of faith, right? That God says he cares about us, but we can sometimes feel when the... When the storms come, you know, that literally happened to them, but whatever it might be, that somehow we're disregarded by God. Um, we respond in a despair or maybe anger when the hard times come and assume that God isn't paying attention or his plan has gone off the rails. But let's read on. This is a, a treasure here, the, the next part. So, do you not know? 
Once again, you know the question, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So it already mentioned that, right? Don't you know he's above all things? Now it's going to mention an important truth about it. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. So the, the comfort that now Isaiah wants to tie in with God's omnipotence and his supreme glorious power is he doesn't get tired of exercising that power for the benefit of his people. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So he's our source of strength. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. So you know, the best of us can't you know, be limitless or have unending strength. But, now this I think is really important as the chapter closes out. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So how do we fulfill that? How do we find limitless energy that will soar, that will run and never grow tired, that will walk and never be faint? How does that become ours? (laughs) Right. So obviously this is ultimately fulfilled. You're right. This is fulfilled on the last day. Or, you know, when, when we look at the new creation, we will be made resurrected bodies that will be without the limitations of sin. So ultimately, that's when it is fulfilled. Is any of this fulfilled right now? By the promise. Does God give us strength right now? Through the promise. Yeah. I believe in his promise. Yeah. So, yeah, if we start to grow weary and tired... We can find in the Lord strength right now. So that strength includes looking forward to what we will one day have, but it sustains us and strengthens us right now. So, And notice, this is not by works, is it? Look at verse 31. Trust and hope. Yeah, those who hope, those who trust in the Lord. So it's all about faith. Isaiah is going to present, have faith. God is not going to grow tired. God is above all things. Have faith. He has given you good news, Israel. He's given you good news, people of God. Uh, Know that he is your source of strength, and he himself will never grow weary or tire of giving you what you need. So that's the, the closing comfort here is someday we're going to enjoy limitless energy, strength, endurance, and we will soar, and we will fly in the the eternal kingdom of our God. And until then, he's our source of strength as we hope in him, trust in him. You know, I think I've seen many a Hallmark card that said that. We'll soar on wings like eagles. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it fun to see the, the whole context around I mean, that? It's really, it's a, it's, a, it's a great message for anyone who's grieving. Take it out of the Bible. You know. Yep. And there's a pretty popular hymn on eagle's wings based off of this verse. And, you know, it mentions even the best of us grow tired and weary. Even, you know, the, the young who are supposed to be strong, they stumble and fall. But God does not grow weary. And he does not grow tired of watching over, working for, and carrying out his good plan for his people, centered on the work of his son, Uh, Think of, (laughs) almost ironic, that Christ 
grew weary, tired as he was, and yet God wasn't ceasing to care for his son, and his son would carry out his plan with the strength that he had, which God equipped him for, to, to be our strength and to go to the cross so that we would never grow weary. He even, you know, remember he's marching up to Golgotha, physically, according to his human nature, couldn't lift up the cross anymore. Even though they were whipping him and prodding him on, he lowered himself to become that, that one who lost all strength so that we could be forgiven and forever have the promise of strength. Just unfathomable mystery of the grace of God. And that's why um, I also wanted to tie in what we saw in Matthew 11, right? Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Rest right now as you hope in him and find forgiveness. Rest promised for eternal life. Okay, we'll probably pick it up there next time. We'll review the closing part as we jump into verse chapter 41 next time. Other thoughts or comments up to that point? Appreciate your uh, participation today and as our study goes along, we'll, we'll go as fast as we, we need to, but it looks like we're tracking roughly a page or two of our study each week. Why don't we close with a prayer regarding what we saw in God's word today. Lord, as we marvel at your strength and your power, help us not to forget that when people that are ruling this world take charge and act as if they have sway or, or power over things, that your plan will not fail, that you are over all the nations. They are but nothing, dust before you. Give us comfort as we remember your greatness and your glory. And also when we start to think that because you're so great and we're so small, that you're not paying attention, remind us that you never grow weary of watching over us and that you are our source of strength, though we are small, and that as we trust in you, you will carry out your promise to give us strength and unending life. Amen.